Welcome back to another episode of the Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Robert Black, but you can call me The Professor. I'm known around this city for my blog, The Groundhog Day Project, two recently completed podcasts, Michael Myers Minute and Dave Made a Minute, and the audacity to take on The Room Minute next. Richard Rayner, Los Angeles Times, December 6, 2003, calls noir romantic and delusional, much like L.A.'s call to the world. The city is a harsh mistress, my friends. I said before that I grew up in Los Angeles, lived here all my life. That isn't 100% true. I escaped once. Lived in Tennessee for a month, Arkansas for three, and regretted it. Wanted to return. But it was a woman that pulled me away, and sometimes a woman of flesh and bone and blood is far more appealing than this woman of concrete and steel, smog and mirrors, big screens, big egos, dreams of stardom, drug-fueled nightmares, hopes fulfilled and quashed day in and day out, as so many of us sit in gridlock traffic wondering why we're here. But we always remember. We're here because anything is possible here. The common line is that you can surf and ski on the same day around L.A., if the season is right anyway. Climate change might ruin that, I suppose. And I'm reminded of Steve Erickson's days between stations where dust clouds filled the skies over L.A. and you've got to clean piles of dust from out in front of your door every morning. Which drives my mind to Philip K. Dick's to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, of course, where there's radioactive dust in the air all over. Hmm. I think it's San Francisco in the novel. I suppose it was meant to be Los Angeles. It had to be Los Angeles. It always has to be Los Angeles. Any city pretending at film noir is just playing at being Los Angeles, where the city spreads in every direction as far as the eye can see, at least until it hits the coast or mountains. And sometimes it goes past those, too. Where dreamers come to make it big and end up waiting tables while they work their way through bit parts and commercials or one episode of a TV show and the film industry, which we'll hear more about later in this film, beats you down and beats you down so that, in theory, only the cream rises to the top. But I'm distracted from my own pseudo-poetic tale of Los Angeles as the end-all be-all of film noir because I'm looking at a paper I wrote nine years ago about religion into Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, and I can't help but try to fit Ed touching this black portfolio full of photos of Diana as some sort of mercerous epiphany. It doesn't fit, and most of you listening don't even know what I'm talking about because sure, you've seen Blade Runner, but what are the chances that you've actually read Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep? And if you have read it, what are the chances that you remember the empathy box and mercerism? We had to create a religion for the people in the novel as part of the assignment. The people in my paper effectively worship the radioactive sand and embrace the decay and death inherent in its presence in the air around them. Which that kind of nihilism is pure noir. Last minute, I was talking about the history of Los Angeles. Here's one more bit from Tina Olson-Lentz, The Dark Side of the Dream, the image of Los Angeles in film noir. Quote, 
The contradictions of life in Los Angeles, the earthy paradise breeding corruption and disenchantment, the unlimited promise resulting in failure and frustration, became the subject of a series of Los Angeles novels written in the 1930s and 1940s. The successful Hollywood film industry, which by 1918 had become the movie capital of the world, was one of the economic bases of the financial boom of the 1920s, end quote. Skip over to John Bunton, L.A. Noir, The Struggle for the Soul of America's Most Seductive City, quote, Los Angeles became the home of the movie industry almost by accident. In 1909, Colonel William Selig, a minstrel show owner who filched a title from the military and the design of the kinescope movie projector from Thomas Edison, had sent director Francis Boggs west from Chicago to shoot a western in Arizona. Arizona was hot and dull, so Boggs pressed on to the city he had visited two years earlier, Los Angeles. There he and other itinerant filmmakers found the perfect outdoor shooting environment, a mixture of cityscape and countryside, deserts and mountains, ocean and forest. It's 3,000 mile distance from New York and the motion picture patents company Trust, which technically, i.e. legally, held the license on the technology used by the industry, was a plus two. By 1910, the year Los Angeles annexed Hollywood, some ten odd motion picture companies had set up operations in the area. That same year, the director D.W. Griffith completed the movie In Old California, the first film shot completely in Hollywood. The following year, the Nestor Film Company moved from New Jersey to the corner of Sunset and Gower Street becoming the first Los Angeles-based motion picture studio. Universal, Triangle, Loose, Lasky's Famous Players, later Paramount, Vitagraph, later Columbia, Metro, later part of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, or MGM, Fox, and others soon followed. By 1915, Hollywood was synonymous with the film industry, and Los Angeles was producing between 60 and 75% of the country's motion pictures, a little more than a quarter of the world's total films. The First World War destroyed the foreign competition and made Hollywood the cinematic capital of the world. By 1921, its 70-plus studios had 80% of the world market. In the process, Hollywood became fantastically rich. By 1919, an estimated 15,000 theaters in the United States alone were generating roughly $800 million a year in revenues, roughly $10 billion in today's dollars. End quote. And back to Lent. Quote, With the introduction of sound, the movies required scripts. And lured by the promise of high salaries and steady work, writers came to Los Angeles throughout the 1930s to meet those needs. Many became disillusioned by the conditions of studio employment, and to them, as to the other immigrants to the region, the dream of Southern California collided with the reality of life in the Southland. As a result, a number of them, James M. Kane, Horace McCoy, Nathaniel West, Aldous Huxley, S. Scott Fitzgerald, and earlier settler Raymond Chandler, wrote Los Angeles-set novels discrediting the dream as a fraud. Their collective disappointment in the dream inspired them to transform it into its antithesis, the Los Angeles Anti-Myth, where the dream runs out along the California shore and Los Angeles becomes land's end, the end of the road, the dead end. In their work, Los Angeles became the consummate symbol of cultural pretense and artifice, and Hollywood its epitome and central metaphor. End quote. Enter into this land's end a few more decades of film, and Michelle Pfeiffer, not a transplant like so many actresses, she was born in Santa Ana. That's Orange County down south of Disneyland for those of you who might have traveled here on vacation once. But you can get from Los Angeles proper to Santa Ana without ever drifting outside urban space. So it might as well be Los Angeles. Miss Orange County 1978, 6th place for Miss California. Pfeiffer landed an agent and made her screen debut, Season 2, Episode 10 of Fantasy Island. A few more guest spots followed. Then a string of TV movies in 1981. And while I likely saw some of those appearances... I first knew who she was when she made her big screen debut in Grease 2. And I said a few episodes ago, Michelle Pfeiffer was one of my earliest cinematic crushes. It was because of Grease 2. You know, I usually don't do this bad in English. It's just that I got other stuff on my mind these days. Anything I can help you with? No, it's not with school. Forget it. Let's just get this stuff over with. All right. 
Where'd you want to stop? It's this guy. What guy? Oh, forget it. Well, I'm trying, but you're not making it very easy. I had this idea of Mr. Wright, remember? Which is a stupid idea, right? Right. And then all out of nowhere he shows up. Like, like some dream, dream or something. something. Who? Mr. Wright. And then the crazy thing is, is that I've seen him twice now. And both times he's wearing these goggles. I don't even know who he is. Mr. Wright. Right. Don't, don't you think that's kind of weird? weird? Not, Not weird, weird, but, but like, like exciting weird. So what's the problem then? Well, well the problem is, is maybe it's just not everything not I imagined. Everything I imagined. What, what if behind those goggles he's just like some ordinary, ordinary guy? guy? What if he is? What if maybe we should get back to the Shakespeare essay? Stephanie. You know, and I figured out what Hamlet's big problem is. No ketchup. He seemed to get along pretty well without it. They never put ketchup on, even when you ask for it. How can you eat a hamburger with no ketchup? Oh, wouldn't I? Could you shoot that over here? <clears throat> Where were we? Uh, you'd figured out the problem with their hamburgers. No ketchup. Right. And you know what his big problem is? No laugh. I mean, the guy's got to lighten up, right? Right. Right? No, thanks. Uh, who are we talking about now? Hammer. Oh, right. <laughs> Hamlet went totally nuts when he caught his mother doing it in the sack with his uncle. That's so great, right? Well, you seem to have the right idea. But you could have said something like, um... Hamlet uh, was tormented by his mother's incestuous relationship with his uncle. Incestuous relationship? Oh, God. Mason's going to flip when she reads this. Incestuous. You're a really smart guy, you know that? You must think I'm some kind of dummy, huh? Actually, I think you're kind of terrific. Get out of here. You're the terrific one. I mean, you know all this deep junk and everything. I don't stand that deep junk any better than you do, really. I just uh, seem to know a few big words that impress English teachers, like our friend Miss Mason, that's all. Well, you impressed me. And I give credit to who I want, okay? To whom? To who, to whom? To you, that's whom. So learn how to take a compliment, all right? All right. Hey, how about a hamburger for my friend here? Loaded. Uh, with ketchup. Double ketchup. Looking at that scene again today, I wonder, was I already destined to be just like Michael Carrington when I wasn't even ten? Is that why I found an attachment to Stephanie Zanoni? In all my nerdy years, was I looking for this diner conversation, or is the randomness of Diana landing on Ed's car enough? Michelle Pfeiffer would go on to Scarface, but I wouldn't see that until one late night when I was a teenager. And then she did Into the Night. She wasn't supposed to be in Into the Night, of course. You may have already heard this story from other podcasters in earlier minutes, but bear with me. John Landis tells an unnamed interviewer on the Director's Guild website, Sometime. The specific page is poorly put together, a video clip that won't run, a transcript that for some reason is light blue on white and barely readable. Landis explains, His initial cast was Gene Hackman and Jamie Lee Curtis. I just finished covering the original Halloween over at Michael Myers Minute, and I'm only just learning of this in passing. Jamie Lee Curtis was almost in this. Landis explains, Quote, do you remember how you cast it, those two leads? 
I remember it was very difficult because Frank Price was now the head of Universal. And he wouldn't use Gene Hackman. It was one of those times where Gene Hackman was cold, so he said, Well, he's not a movie star. I go, Gene Hackman, he's one of our best actors. Because the Ed Oaken was supposed to be an older guy, you know, a middle-aged guy, and it's... But Jamie took the John Travolta movie, the huge one, and then... Because you were going to use Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. It was going to be Jamie Lee, because that was after Trading Places. It was going to be... But then the studio wouldn't do it with Hackman, so then I tried... Gosh, I went through a bunch of actors, but Frank Price just wouldn't greenlight it. I turned out finally that this big success at Sony was... Oh, Christ. Larry Kasdan's movie, The Big Chill. So it turned out, if I used anyone from The Big Chill... So we tried to get Tom Berenger, we tried to get Kevin Klein, we... And I ended up with Jeff Goldblum. And it was interesting with Jeff Goldblum, because he wasn't as mannered as he... As he's become a satire of Jeff Goldblum. Then, he was much more discovered. Yeah. And it was odd. I liked how odd a choice it was. And that's when David Cronenberg met him. Because David, that's his first acting. David Cronenberg, and he was good. I think it's wonderful. And had a caster. She wasn't famous yet. Michelle had done, she was Miss Orange County. She had done a Charlie Chan movie with Peter Usinoff that nobody saw. And she did Grease 2, which was unsuccessful. And then she was in Scarface. And the studio very much wanted me to have her, and I was kind of prejudiced against her because I didn't like her character in Scarface. I thought she was too thin. And somebody said, no, John, she's playing a junkie. And meet her, Ed Lamotta, her agent. I think it's the only time I've ever had an agent really just, you've got to meet her, you've got to meet her, just tell me so much that I finally met her. And she was terrific. And I gained weight, you know, and very beautiful. I think she's really good in the movie. End quote. And I'm wondering if it's fate. Let, Let me explain. explain. No, no, there is too much. Let, Let me, me sum up. In Michael Myers' minute, I often talked about fate. The whims of destiny. That original Halloween film never tells us why Michael goes after Laurie Strode. We can imagine reasons, but the film suggests, by explicitly mentioning fate, that maybe it is random. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe what happens to us just happens to us. And one day, a woman lands on the hood of your car in a parking lot at LAX, and sure, it's not Jamie Lee Curtis. It's better. It's Michelle Pfeiffer. Stephanie Zanoni herself. She's our femme fatale here. Nicholas Christopher explains in Somewhere in the Night, film noir in the American City, quote, A woman invariably joins him at a crucial juncture, when he is most vulnerable. In his eyes, she may appear to be wreathed in light, beatific, a Beatrice, guiding and protecting him, or duplicitous, a Circe, spinning webs of deceit and leading him directly to danger. Often she is a hybrid of the two, whose eventual betrayal of him or herself is as ambiguous as her feelings about him. Others seek overtly to thwart him through brute force or subtler manipulation, or to deflect him into serving their ends. His antagonists are figures of authority, legal or criminal, that loom out of his reach, or else misfits and outcasts enthrall to the powerful. However random the obstacles in his path may seem, the forces behind them are always more powerful than he. End quote. It happens into the story end, but for a few seconds at the very end, he might have happened right out again. Minute 29 begins, finally, with Ed sitting looking at Diana's portfolio still. Let's Get It On is still playing. And here, if not before, it really feels like it's incidental, because it cuts out when we cut to Diana in the bathroom, second two. And when we come back to Ed, a new song is playing. But first the bathroom. And if ten-year-old me had had this movie on a VHS tape in the house instead of, say, Trading Places, I might have watched the scene many a time. And I don't mean to be crude. At that age, I was just watching, when I knew what time codes certain scenes were on certain tapes. We're close on Diana. So close that it isn't immediately obvious that she is no longer wearing her dress from before, because it did hang low on the shoulders. Water is running, 
and Diana looks up like she's concentrating on something. When I looked at these minutes to start my notes, I had seen this movie only once, and in the interim months had forgotten about the smuggled jewels, and inviting Ed into the apartment with Let's Get It On playing, and now Diana is in the bathroom? Second four, she looks down, but it's more of her focusing, not a change in attention, and then second five would get the ankle from behind and to her left. She's completely naked, and in the context of film noir, and having only seen this once, the sequence feels like Diana coming on to Ed. Never mind the guy she was with, having just been killed. She's the femme fatale. She's a sexual being. And my impulse was to think she was inserting a diaphragm, perhaps. Because the film is showing us partial nudity, but nothing explicit. I couldn't be sure. And after this bit in the bathroom, she puts a whole new outfit on, and she and Ed end up leaving rather than having sex, and not because next minute her brother Charlie shows up to interrupt. So I turned to my, let me get the credit we decided on, right? Smuggling Things in Vaginas expert, Alison Grimm of the maybe-sometime-soon Jeopardy podcast, Potent Potables. And having not seen the film, she asked the important context questions. What were they doing prior to this minute? And are they about to bone? Which by this time I've watched the movie a second time, and I'm not so sure about the diaphragm thing. She's either inserting a diaphragm or splashing water on her vagina to make sure it's clean, Allison tells me. And she adds, I wonder if she's taking a tampon out. This is why you need a smuggling things of vaginas expert sometimes, people. They cut straight to it. She asks what film this is. I tell her, and she cuts past all the ignorance of the film and Googles it. The basic plot description mentions the smuggled jewels. And the solution was so obvious in the larger context, but in just this scene it wasn't so clear. Diana smuggled the emeralds in her vagina. And as we will see later in this minute, Diana has no real qualms about Ed seeing her naked, but she closed the door to the bathroom because she's removing the emeralds. Second six, she has something in her hand and she turns away from camera. We don't see it. If we can look past Michelle Pfeiffer's naked back, we might notice the Elvis jumpsuit hanging in the shower, or the giant black and white Elvis face on the wall to the left, and then second eight we're seeing Diana naked and much younger. Before you get the wrong idea, there's a picture of Diana, Michelle Pfeiffer presumably, as a baby in the bath, and as a toddler in that portfolio-slash-photo album Ed's looking at. And as I mentioned already, a new song is playing, I Can't Help Myself by The Four Tops, released April 23rd, 1965, number one on the R&B charts and number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for two non-consecutive weeks. Second nine. Close on Ed, he smiles as one might smile seeing cute baby pictures of a strange woman who just fell on your car. Second 10, angle on Diana in the mirror, the back of her head in a blurry extreme close-up taking up at least the right third of the frame. She removes her left earring. Because my aforementioned expert didn't know what the smuggled jewels were, she thought the earrings that Diana wears next were what she just got out of hiding. Second 13, extreme close-up on black and white photo of Diana as a child. Ed turns the page from out of frame and we see an old black and white photo of Diana as a child with an older boy behind her. I'm not sure if, behind the scenes, this is Michelle and her older brother Rick or not. Second 17, back to Diana in the bathroom, her hair back in a bobby pin and she's washing her face with some very soapy hands. Second 19, album again, Diana, maybe four or five years old. Smaller to the right, Diana in what might be a white prom dress in front of some nice 60s slash 70s style wood paneling, and the top of a large black and white photo cut in a rough oval. Second 21, angle on Ed, he looks up from the album, he's thinking something. Second 23, Diana. New earrings in, getting her hair into just the right mid-80s must look with her hands. She stops, giving up. Diana. Oh, f*** it. She turns back toward the door and out of frame and we're back on Ed, second 27. He looks up slowly and there's almost a double take as he focuses on second 30, reverse shot, and Diana is not yet in view. But she walks past the doorway and she's got nothing on but the radio. And second 33, back to Ed. Goldblum's smiles are all about the same, 
But with the eyes closed here, you can sense the awkwardness of this moment. Sure. But also, hey, that lady that fell out of my car is naked in there. He may be married, but he's film noir married. He may be married, but he's not dead. He opens his eyes to look again in second 34, angle on bedroom as Diana passes in the other direction, carrying clothes. Second 36, back on Ed. And there might as well not even be an open photo album in front of him. His attention is on the bedroom doorway now. As it should be. Second 37, we're inside the bedroom, and much to our chagrin, and Ed's, if he could see it, Diana is getting dressed. And if we can ignore the white panties or the purple shirt sliding on or the flesh beneath it, we might notice the Elvis pins stuck in the lampshade, the Elvis scarf hanging over it, the large clear plastic container full of matchbooks. She tosses a pair of blue jeans onto the bed, and second 41, we're on Ed again. A downward angle so we can see he's still thumbing through the photo album. New Elvis item sighting, because Goldblum looking at a photo album is far easier to look beyond than fight for getting dressed. A plate, that is all black and white photo of Elvis, hangs above the glasses and mugs. More posters visible over the couch, including a poster book size one of Elvis in his army uniform reading what might be a newspaper. Despite the possibility of a naked woman in the next room, Ed, who I previously called a gentleman, mind you, actually looks at the album as he turns another page. The two photos visible are not entirely in a frame, and they are upside down, but the page to our right is clearly a modeling pose. Diana in shorts, posing on some slope. The page on our left is Diana in a white dress, and maybe cowboy boots. Second 45, angle on bedroom. Diana comes in a frame, falling onto the bed to zip her jeans. And she's got the receiver from a landline tucked between her cheek and shoulder. She slides more into view and looks toward camera. Toward Ed. Toward us. Don't go away. I'll be right out, she says. Second 49, angle on Ed. He nods. She starts to speak into the phone before second 51, angle on bedroom. Diana. Yes, well, it's an emergency. Do you know where she can be reached? She buttons her jeans, finally. Reaches for the zipper. And the minute ends. I'll have more for you on the femme fatale next minute. Like Marianne Doan in Femmes Fatales, Feminism, Film Theory, Psychoanalysis, calling the femme fatale, quote, the figure of certain discursive unease, a potential epistemological trauma, end quote. That's getting us into some fancy talk. Best left of my final minute with you here at the Into the Night Minute. For now, I will offer you something I learned about Michelle Pfeiffer in the process of preparing for these minutes that I don't think I ever knew before. In an interview with the Sunday Telegraph's Stella Magazine, November 2nd, 2013, Pfeiffer explains how when her future husband Peter Horton was working on 1982's Split Image, quote, We were talking with an ex-Mooney and he was describing the psychological manipulation and I just clicked, end quote. She was involved at the time with a very controlling couple that believed in breatharianism, and they put her on a diet nobody can adhere to. Breatharianism, or anedia, is essentially the idea that a person can live on prana, in Hindu philosophy, the vital life force, and food and water are unnecessary. Pfeiffer explains, quote, They worked with weights and put people on diets. Their thing was vegetarianism. They were controlling. I wasn't living with them, but I was there a lot, and they were always telling me I needed to come more. I had to pay for all the time I was there, so it was financially very draining, end quote. The Daily Mail, November 15, 2013, explains further, quote, Convinced that their regime of hardcore fasting and mysticism would keep her slim and expand her spiritual horizons, she would visit them three times a week, as they gradually emptied her bank account with their incessant demands for fees. They persuaded her to become a vegetarian via fruitarianism, eating only fruit, as a first step towards the goal of full breatharianism, living on the supposed nutrients in air and light. The actress wanted to leave the group, but they persuaded her that she wouldn't be able to survive without them. End quote. Horton was acting in Split Image, a film about Reverend Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church, the Moonies. Pfeiffer was helping him with research on this cult, and she realized, quote, I was in one, end quote. I know the feeling. 
Split Image was released October 3, 1982, so it was likely in production in spring of 1982. I mentioned earlier how John Landis, having seen Pfeiffer and Scarface released in December 1983, thought she was too thin. She was, of course, portraying a drug addict and was supposed to be too thin. Reportedly, she lived on tomato soup and Marlboros for her role as Elvira in Scarface. But additionally, the timing suggests that part of how she became too thin for that role might have been because of the Breatharians she was connected to the year before. That is all for Minute 29. Incidental music was Some of My Fears by Daisy May, available on freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Once again, I'm Robert Black. Some folk call me the professor. Check out lemmingdrops.com to see all the stuff I've been up to, including my latest podcast, The Room Minute. You can find the End of the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or check out nightminute.com. Follow at Night Minute on Twitter or join us on Facebook in the King Lives Listener's Limo. Join us again here next time on the Into the Night Minute. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category.